everyone, welcome to the Reproducibility Podcast. Today you have Sarah and Will. Hello. I'm Sarah. I'm coming to you from St. John's in Newfoundland. So St. John's occupies the ancestral homelands of the Beothuk, and the island of Newfoundland is the traditional territories of the Nyingma. And I'm Will. Uh, I'm coming from Chicago, uh, and the tr- which are the traditional lands of the Potawatomi. Great. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the limits of open science. And so I really want to talk about this early on. I think it's important for us to bring in critical um, aspects, bring in critique of open science as early as we can and incorporate it into all of this podcast. Because we can talk about all of the, the great goals of open science and I do think that they they are aspirational goals. However, the reality is often different. And I think it's important to talk about what those limits are, where open science fails, because then that can show us how we can keep on pushing to do better. What do you think, Will? That sounds awesome to me. And it's very important, right? It's very important to qualify what those limits are especially if you want change to occur um i guess one of the uh most de-energizing that's is that a word de-energizing uh sure one of of those one of those things is uh like not meeting not meeting your aspirations because you are limited right and not being able to achieve what you set out to do that's sort of disheartening right so Mm-hmm. that's part of it like recognizing what the limits are but also yeah trying to trying to sort of map what the limits are allows you to sort of concretely see where the what change the movement can or whatever reform you are trying to suggest can produce so i think mm-hmm. incredibly yeah so important to start topic. off yeah sorry to start off today we've got Three topics. I'm sure we'll make other episodes about probably each of these or more as we go on. But today we want to start with talking about open data. We want to talk about accessibility. And we want to talk about reproducibility. So we'll start with with data, right? As far as I've come across, the best standards for open data are the FAIR principles. Those the acronym stands for findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And those are the ideals. However, we can pretty quickly think of some examples of data that cannot meet those standards. Now, I'm a music scientist, and so right away, music is a problem (laughs) to, to meet these standards. Right. Especially all sorts of different kinds of music research it might be, you might have scores, you might have recordings, you might have analyses, uh, like annotations. Um, and then you have participant responses that could be ratings. They could be continuous ratings or um, intermittent ratings. They can be words, descriptors. Um, it could be like skin conductance and it could be brain activity. So like synthesizing all of those things to meet the fair standards is essentially not possible. 
And there's a good paper on that that's also put um, in the show notes. So right off the bat, we've got like just one example in my field of how it doesn't work. Yeah, are you... This is a very ignorant question because I am not in music science. But, um, yeah, like, I mean, to me, it occurs to me that if you were to upload your music stimuli, you could get lawsuits from the artists for just openly making available their music or, you know, without copyright yeah, or Yeah, depending on the type of work. And that sort of restricts us in what we can do, right? Because right? we do, we are concerned with, with copyright. And so what you can use in your studies have to be either created by you, which is incredibly common, or or co common domain, right? Yeah, wow. So, yeah, how, how do you, like, what has your experience been with trying to, like, you know, for example, get the open data badges, or what has your experience been with trying to, like, have... I've not yet even attempted data. it. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like, it seems very daunting. Like, I don't think there's... Yeah. Oh, good way of circumventing that. <laughs> um, no. And then another example, I think right off the bat, is like interview and focus group data as any kind of qualitative information. Yeah. Like you cannot publish all of that because it can very easily identify the participants. And that's obviously an ethical issue. So right away, you're excluding a lot of qualitative work, if not all qualitative work, from the movement of open science if open data is a requirement. Mm -hmm. and, and then the last example I can think of is neuroscience data for, for several reasons. One, because the files are enormous. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was it like a gig for an hour of EEG data or something? Yeah, yeah, for an hour, about a gig. But yeah, they'll mostly be like, you're talking three gigs, four gigs for one participant. Yeah. So across multiple participants, you're going to end up with terabytes, terabytes of data. Exactly. I know that there are some repositories that are being developed for this, but another issue that was raised in a conversation I had, I think about a year ago, was that we don't know when or if we'll get to a point where we'll be able to identify people based on their brain data, especially if they've done multiple studies, because your brain is unique. And even if we don't have the technology now, is it ethical to take someone's data, publish it openly, with the risk that they may eventually be identified. Right. Yeah, that's a, a whole set of issues um, with open data. And yeah, it sort of demonstrates the limits, right? The limits of the open science. Like, okay, firstly, open data is not possible for many, but also open data might have far-reaching consequences that we may not experience now, but may be problematic in the future. Uh, mm -hmm. It also makes the assumption that information should be available to everyone. Right. And I know that that's, an, that's a, a value as far that I understand open science to, to celebrate, is that knowledge is for everyone, free access to anything. But I don't think that that's necessarily the way that we should go. Right? Like, I don't agree with that value because hmm. then it, it makes there's several problems with it one is just the idea of universality um and universal access to knowledge that everyone has a right to knowledge that's only one way of conceiving of knowledge that isn't true for all cultures 
And then the other one is that it makes it really hard to be accountable to your participants when the data is just out there and accountable to anybody really when the knowledge is just sort of sitting there. Who's, whose responsibility is it to, to curate that, to take care of it, to make sure it's not misused? And how do you ensure that the participants are, are protected? Yeah, uh, it's tough. It's, a, it's not easy. Uh, yeah, I've, I would, this is probably a gross generalization, but I think most scientists who currently open, like add their data, do their best to de-identify um, the data, but as, as so far as they will like remove the initials from the data files or things like that, but not realizing that there are going to be things in those data files that may identify the person if someone chose to like go through it with their analyses. Like, um, mm-hmm. it's and it's we like it's tricky. Like, not not many people have the knowledge to be able to get data to that state, right? And again, and on top of that, yeah, uh, we the the consequences of having all things open data is um, is far reaching, right? And so, is that the standard we want for all of science? Probably not. Uh, so yeah, what is it that we are trying to achieve with open data, and is this the best way to um, achieve that goal, that underlying goal? Yeah, I was gonna ask the same thing, as, along with like, who is the open data really for? Mm, right. And it feels like it's become a little bit performative, and we do it for other researchers. I agree. like is that who it's who it's for? Like, who, you're right. right? What uses it to the public? And I, I think, at its, I don't know, maybe most generous, or at its at the very beginning, the whole, I think, the whole idea is to try to restore trust in science, to make sure that we're being transparent so that the public who is funding our research can trust our findings. They can be replicated and go, yes, this is information. These are the conclusions that can be drawn from it. They're not overreaching. They're not, you know, misinterpreting. Like, this is something that we can, we can see it's transparent. But I'm not sure that transparency necessarily means share everything out there for free with no restrictions. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there are also arguments for open data. I mean, and so I think the main purpose in the context of the science reform movement is to have, a, like, ideal in an optimal, ideal science, we have reviewers able to check that data and mm-hmm. rerun the analyses. Um, so at the very least... It should be open to the reviewers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So have they ever actually done that? Gone. I've, yeah, I've tried in my reviews. Um, yeah, I can't access the data. Uh, I'll I'll lead with that. I say my first like you know how you have like some. So my the format of my reviews is like summary and then uh, major mm-hmm. major points, minor points. And in my major points, if I can't access the data, I'll say in my first point, I would love to have informed my review by being able to look at the data and try and reproduce the analyses or to see the experimental code, blah, blah, blah. And I, I highly encourage the authors to at least make it ex- like accessible with an unlisted link. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
Um, but yeah, I think I, it can be worked in. Sorry, continue. Oh no, I just I admit that I probably take that way more seriously than most. Let's say I'd say my behavior is probably right, but I think that's the best place in which to do it. Because part of what I'm thinking also with open science in general is like, okay, how do I work this into my day-to-day workflow? Hmm. Right? Like, am I going to go write a paper and go, oh, interesting. Am I going to go search for their data and run their analysis? Like, probably not. I'm probably just going to implicitly trust that they they did things well because it's been peer-reviewed. You know, I'm not going to spend the time doing that. But if it's part of my review process, that makes sense to me. Right. And then once it's published everyone would know that like, okay, the reviewers, two, three people, if you've gone to multiple journals, more than that, have replicated the analysis and okayed it. Yeah, that's an important... And I think that would be like already a huge improvement in the level of certainty, I guess, that we would have in results that you know that this this isn't just a lab, the reviewers have also gone through it. So I think that's maybe the, the best place in the workflow to put that process. Right. Uh, as you mentioned, I totally agree. Like it ensures the rigor of our work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the quality it's a quality control. Like yeah, peer review is meant control. to be the quality control of our science. So uh, yeah, I think open data and having reviewers access that open data to make sure um, uh, nothing, for example, nothing nefarious mm-hmm. is going on. Like, the one that comes to mind for me is like Excel data, Excel spreadsheets with additional columns for, you know, you can see like people have added data to the thing. Let's say like, like, like that kind of fraud, data manipulation or like, you know, potential mistakes or so on and so forth. Or like, you know, the concern with reproducible, like analyses not being reproducible or just double checking the numbers. Like all of this is valuable, right? <clears throat> valuable mm-hmm. work. Um, so that's... Yeah, exactly. But I think... That it's it's really important to share data at that point, but then beyond that is what's right. what is our goal after? What's what's the point and what's the impetus behind keeping our data open to the public to anybody? So yeah, so there are other uses for public data for other researchers who may like mine through that data for or realize that a certain data set is useful for their purposes. Um so, or like, for example, meta-analyses where rather than relying on what's reported in the manuscript, they can actually use the data files and you combine them in some way to do a more data-driven meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. So I can see that going, so going beyond the review process, I can see it being useful publicly available for further research. But then you're right. right. What? Again, it's still for researchers. Yes, absolutely. What use does greater population have uh, with this data. And so this touches on perhaps open science should think a bit more about science communication, right? How Mm -hmm. to best communicate the data to the public for their use and to make sure it's accessible to them, right? Not just in the sense that they can access the data, in the sense that they can access the knowledge gained from the data. Um, Yeah, because there's a whole set of skills to, to use data that's out there. And maybe actually one way that we might be able to enhance communication is to publish um, shiny apps. Oh, I love that. 
<laughs> that allow the public to easily, with an interface, plot and explore the data. Yes. Yes. And then uh, that could go along with your publication and be like, here's our data set, but not just like, here's an Excel spreadsheet of numbers. Like, here's a shiny app with, and you can plot this list of variables and you can do these different manipulations or test these different things in the shiny app. And so the public can interact with the data in a way that's helped. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I have many thoughts on this. Uh, okay. So just to wind, go up a level, shiny apps uh, written oh, yes. in R programming and they are hosted online so people can access them through their web browser and it's a so it's an applet where you can do things like data visualizations or um yeah or ways to like sift through the data as you would with a statistical analysis and have them presented on an accessible app and i've done this sort of thing so i uh have a paper where i estimate statistical power for a certain design with uh, erps so what i did was i had collected some big data sets, the biggest data sets that we are aware of within the field and downsampled them so that um, we could see, oh, how much power do you have uh, at th with this number of subjects in this number of trials? So um, the Shiny app that I created as part of this allowed people to estimate for whatever their design was or whatever their intentional design was. Um, so for example, they could insert, I have, 25 subjects or 30 trials. So um, this is your estimated statistical power according to the big data set that we have, right? And so researchers could slide slide around and you know move through the, the, the data space to see what power they had. And so that helps improve the researchers' own uh, designs. But, you know, the public can sort of see and be like, oh, okay, this is uh, the number of resources that is required to do this kind of research. Uh, and that's just a very, um, you know, fundamental sort of knowledge that's passed on to the public. But then they can say, okay, this is the research that we're funding and these are the resources that are required for that. For example, if they were to understand what statistical power was. Yeah. So Yeah. We'll absolutely uh, link that in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. Not wasn't here to try and like... Uh, no, I know, but I think it's a great example. I mean, I have one too, but it's not, a, it's not academic research. It's part of the, the Brand Art Project that I do where we collect plastics and we identify like the type, the brand, all that kind of stuff. So I have a shiny app to show that data so people can, can look at what we That's found. cool. Yeah, we should link that too. And I've yeah. like, I have a vague memory of someone creating a shiny app where it exactly saying what uh, you mentioned, which was like you could click on certain buttons to have certain parts of the data cut up and then you could see the effects. Like it would visualize the data based on whichever like like I think it was like a multi-variable data set, so you could pick which yeah. data, which variables were mattered to you, and then it would present the data to you in some sort of um, graph. So I mean, I learned to simulate linear modeling using a shiny app. Yeah, seeing like exactly what the effect was when I changed one thing. Right. How does that change what's happening? So it helped yeah. me understand how it all fits together, and how to to write my linear model to simulate what I wanted to simulate. Yeah. So awesome. So exciting. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and usually openly accessible because people can just mm -hmm. go to it with their, um, with their web browser. So yeah, that's... Yeah. It, it's as long as you path. have internet, right? Sure. Which segues into access. Smooth, huh? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it, takes, it takes money and resources to have internet. 
And even if you have internet, then you can access the things that are free. But the biggest barrier when it comes to open science and open access publishing is the cost of it. As though it's free to the public, which is awesome. The cost to the researcher is somewhere between like three and 5,000 at least US dollars. I hate this. This is this frustrates me to no end. Yeah. So yeah. Article processing charges, yeah, range in the three to five thousand range at most prestigious journals, which are because we're in this ridiculous uh, incentive system, uh, is where the researchers want to publish, and yeah. So naturally, the labs with the resources and the funding capable of publishing in those journals um and not just like the article processing charges then the journals charge an additional open access fee to the to the tune of like thousand two thousand dollars to make that article open access so again the labs with the resources then have the capacity to publish open access and get the benefits of that which include, you know, accessibility, visibility, and we there's research out there showing open access articles get more citations, so on and so forth. So, yeah. and you know, the signaling that comes with having your work open might suggest you're, you know, mm-hmm. more rigorous or you're um, in step with the open science movement. So, like, yeah, it's this the this publishing monopoly is ridiculous. Yeah, and the and thing is, it limit. so it creates it creates a really, really large barrier for a lot of people who don't have the resources to be able to do that, specifically the financial resources. And if open science becomes the requirement for all types of science, which is a problem anyway, we'll talk about that another time. But you know, if, if that is the, the goal, then who are we forcing out? Who are we pushing out? Mm-hmm. Right by putting this huge financial barrier, and that doesn't help our, our diversity problem and our inclusivity problem. Yes. Right. So we're we're aggravating existing problems by trying to fix one. So I right. think it's important when we're doing open science and going through creating this movement to make science better. We have to think about how open science may have like unintended consequences, and how do we balance? the goals of open science with inclusion and ethical treatment of everyone involved. Right. So try and maybe anchor some of these discussions we're having. So with the, with open data, some of the issues that will come up were included like current and future, right? Current, because we can't like the stimuli Mm. you may use in music science are copyright. So you can't necessarily just open them up. Uh, and also, we talked about how in neuro, like with neuro, neuro data, we may encounter a time where those data sets, data set, data sets become identifiable. Like you might have uh, ways to identify the people that did those experiments and their brain data. Uh, and it's a similar kind of thing here with open access. The current, if you if we have the balance wrong and require open science sort of and enforce it too quickly or too stringently, we, because of the barriers to open science at the moment, this will reduce and push out the people who can't 
afford open science or who and it just makes it more elitist instead of more inclusive which was the original goal right exactly um and also thinking into the future right like Mm -hmm. um long-term goal we might have issues with um having things all open access for example um so it, it is an ongoing system like there's an ongoing balance to try and optimize and make sure the open science is actually improving science for everyone uh and mm-hmm. is it takes work it takes it's, this doesn't simply just happen uh, yeah and there's a point also brought up in um, a couple of papers that I'll, I'll definitely include in, in the show notes there are two different feminist critiques of open science so with these papers uh, the, the question was raised of who's making the policies right and probably it's the people who can afford to participate who are making the policies and intentionally or not those policies are going to benefit them and so it's who who's paying attention to who's writing the policies who's paying attention to the results of those policies what's going on on this this global scale and some people as exampled by like these pieces of literature some people are paying attention but it takes a lot of work to do and it's who's funding that work right who has the capacity to do that work and who should it fall on because it does seem to be the minoritized people who are being left out who are like well hold on now and they're the ones who have to spend the work and the labor and you know to do all this analysis to to present these arguments so they can be taken seriously by the people who are making the policies. Right. They're the ones who are negatively impacted and experience it. And so, um, and unfortunately, in our current structures, it's usually on them to try and create the reform to fix that issue. But also that reform tends not to be recognized or in various ways with our current incentives and metrics. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a tough issue. And right, so there's gonna be limits to what we can achieve with the reform mm-hmm. yeah i want to go back to the open access uh issue because i mean the prestigious journals are run by for-profit publishing companies Oof. who make a lot of money i rolled yes and uh have far-reaching consequences with the money that they make and uh scientists buy into this structure by um trying to publish in these with these companies right and giving them their business and reviewing for them like the estimate estimated donation that scientists make by reviewing for these journals is a billion dollars there's a what? paper by Alex Axel, Alex Holcomb um uh, forgetting the third reviewer sorry uh, third author sorry about that um yeah they estimated the cost of peer review to be about a billion dollars so essentially we're making this donation to publishing companies who are then walling off their knowledge to try and make their content more profitable they're not interested in bullshit they're they're not interested in you know furthering humankind with the advancement of scientific knowledge they're worried about their what's it what's the phrase their back pocket their bottom line that's that's yeah their bottom line their Their bottom line yeah Uh, yeah okay the shareholders oh and i'm i'm really so and then so back to the people who are doing the work to try and fix this uh 
for example, I'm trying to run this diamond open access journal and trying to cut through mm-hmm. this stupid monopoly that we're part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do that all volunteer. And I'm, I'm helped by a bunch of early career researchers who are also volunteering their time and efforts to this and their expertise. Uh, and there's a lot that go into journals, like getting the reviewers, creating the interface, uh, typesetting, uh, so on and so forth, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's all work. And I would love it if scientists just recognize that this infrastructure is uh, broken and that they need to make a switch. And the best way to do that is to buy support, just to move their work and lend credibility to um, you know, efforts like mine where with the like diamond open access journals which are generally novel and not for profit and so on and so forth and no mm-hmm. fee usually usually there's a benefit for them to publish there too but I recognize that even if I say that it would be great for everyone to switch not everyone has that capability right for example the people who are well resourced well funded can take a hit Right, and they can be like, oh, it'll be okay if I publish this paper in this journal and be and help out, right? Whereas other other people who are junior mates, for example, junior scientists who are st- still beholden to these um to the publish or perish uh incentive structure, aren't able to, you know, publish in these lower journals because their work won't be as recognized, right? They still need the prestige to advance their career. Mm-hmm. So again, but, like who's creating those pressures, right? Like it comes back to who's creating that publisher parish narrative. It's people who are hiring and who are on the hiring committees, other researchers. Like it's, it's all to a certain level internal. Yeah. It's all interconnected as well. But yeah. I'm saying like, even if, if this initiative, if I, even if I go to Twitter and ask for people to try and publish this journal that I'm trying to grow in the hopes of reforming the science, I can't, I, I can't expect everyone to be, in a position that they're ready to jump, <laughs> ready to take yeah. a leap of faith, right? So no, for uh, sure. That's interesting because, like, I don't think I've ever talked to a scientist who's like, "Yes, I love journals." Like everybody hates them. <laughs> <laughs> like, so what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> like collectively, still buying into this, and collectively, we all know they're a problem. Yeah. Like surely, there's. I mean, and there's talk about this somewhat at 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 SIPS. But like these are conversations I think we, we have to have and initiatives like yours I think are really important. And as much as like I wish you were getting paid, I don't think it's fair that you're doing this labor for free. I think you should be paid for this. And at the same time, it would be cool to have more journals like this. But then again, it's like who's gonna do that? Because right now it's expected to all be free labor. Also And these just... these tasks, yeah, they seem to be sorry, like on, on top of what we're supposed to do. Like, I think it would be more reasonable if it was, oh, you're a journal editor? Okay, you're expected to do less publishing. Or you right. can take one or two classes off your teaching load. Right? To, like, balance it out. But that doesn't seem to be it. It just seems to be like, oh, here's another task on top of everything else you gotta do. It's like, no, man. Also, moving away from just, like, the production of our scientific research being papers, and yeah, including... Yes various yes. forms of content such as shiny apps that make the research more far-reaching and impactful and accessible and recognizing that's a useful thing to have in science uh things yeah. like this like where we're communicating issues and knowledge to others like uh, it's yeah. my gears that this is the 
inequity in the system that we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, Anyways, I think we got a little bit off a, on a journal tangent here. Sorry, that's my fault. I no, no, no. I will rant about journals at any chance it's, I get. This is it's. I awful. mean, same. <laughs> so just to bring it back to that last yes, topic that I wanted track. to <laughs> to raise before uh, we close out. Since we are a reproducibility podcast, I thought it was important that we talk about reproducibility in the context of the limits of open science, because nice. reproducibility is really only for a certain type of research, right? It's it's for quantitative research that has hmm. a hypothesis that is being tested, and then you're looking to see if you can replicate that result. There's also the various Not, forms of reproducibility, like empirical, analytical, yes. so on and so forth. Yes. And not all research is created for that. Some types of research really don't care about reproducibility. That's not, that's not something that they value because they have a different set of goals. And so, again, if we're saying that everyone has to be, has to, all research has to be reproducible, reproducible that, like, who's that leaving out? That's leaving out a huge group of of people in a whole type of research and a whole type of knowledge. And that's a problem. Right. The, then, the one that comes to mind is like, we need to have research that's looking at the now, at the, in the present moment. So like, you know, getting the um, lay of the land, so to speak, on certain issues, right? And we need to do research on that. That doesn't matter when the moment has passed, perhaps in the future, but mm-hmm. they don't need to have the explicit purpose that this is going to be reproducible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I feel like it's actually generally quite relaxed. Reproducibility doesn't seem to be as much on the forefront as it used to be. It feels like to me. I don't know uh, if that makes sense. It was just what I came across first. When I came across Open Science first, it was all about reproducibility. It was all about reproducibility. Yes. It was it's all about reproducibility crisis, right? Like exactly. That was the crisis. It was like that's our problem. It's like okay, but and it was presented as a problem for psychology as a whole. But it's like okay, well then you're assuming that psychology is quantitative alone, which it's not. But psychology has a big identity crisis where it's trying to prove it's a real science, and so like yeah, I guess it makes sense. But it's still not okay to like erase all qualitative psychology yes. science. Right. Uh, and so the crisis is specific to one type of research. And even within that, when we're assuming that, okay, we're looking at all of the research that can be replicated, that quote unquote should be replicated, the reality of what kind of research get replicated is also not, you know, everything. Because large studies are hard to replicate. Neuroscience studies are hard to replicate because that takes a lot of resources and money just to to run a neuroscience lab and to test participants. It's very expensive. So typically what gets replicated will be things like easier, easier behavioral tasks. And typically, as far as I can see, by labs that are already established because they can take the time to do replications. Whereas younger researchers are more incentivized to always do new things, which may be shifting with this move towards disability, but like, I'm not quite convinced yet, right? There's still really a push to be the first and to do things that are new and to be novel, which is a whole other problem we can discuss (laughs) another time. Um, 
but yeah, so it's who's who's replicating, what's being replicated, and so what's who again, who's being left out, and what types of knowledges are being left out right when we value replication. I'm a little bit more optimistic on this front, I think Fair. so um one thing that comes to mind is there are initiatives that are trying to address the accessibility of doing replication uh, and the capability of doing replication. Uh, what comes to mind are the, like multi-lab studies, for example, mm. many babies where developmental yeah. research is difficult because um, it's hard to get um, decent sample sizes with babies. Um, so by having a multi-lab collaborative initiative, you can overcome some of these resource barriers um, and also, like, the Psychological Science Accelerator addresses this kind of thing, too. I mean, it hasn't, it's not a kind of, it hasn't fixed everything. It's not, like, going to fix everything. But it's a good step mm-hmm. in the right direction in trying to offset, firstly, just, like, sort of incentivize and bring merits to replication studies. But also, like, um, mm-hmm. also the, uh, but, yeah, also addresses some of the, like, barriers in terms of resources and funding. So that's awesome. Um yeah. So I'm a bit more hopeful in that regard. Um, well, that's good. But <laughs> that's I, encouraging. <laughs> um, but you're right that uh, we need a bit more consensus, I guess, in science or in, within our disciplines, within our specific communities, uh, not just like the psychology community, but within our spe- specific disciplines uh, about the consensus, like generating a consensus on what should be reproducible, right? Which is, I think, is another function of the Psychological Science Accelerator and the many babies. They're like, this thing that we're looking at, that we all research, should be either universal or should generalize or should be reproducible amongst all our things. I mean, there's weight to that, but this is like, uh, let's say, uh, accepted. This is an accepted phenomenon and we need something to show that it's replicating. And I think that's okay. Um yeah, I mean, yes, it replicates as long as we're still acknowledging like, oh, these samples are like, what are what are the demographics of those samples that are included in the replications? Yes. And then you can't generalize beyond those samples. Right. And then that's a reasonable thing to say. It's like, yeah, okay, this is replicated across this many different types of, of samples, this many similar samples, but at this, but like, you know, 5,000 participants or something. Right. And it's like, okay, we can be fairly sure there's an effect there for like undergrad students in North America. right uh yeah acknowledging the generalizability or lack of generalizability of a finding is always important always critical Mm -hmm. um but at the same time with these large-scale efforts like you you are generating larger data sets and you are generally reaching more cultures more countries different kinds of people so the data sets itself compared to what we were at uh, have increased diversity and uh are better in that sense i'm not gonna say they're universal because that's is a right. huge Ooh, that's super loaded <laughs> yes but um at least the likelihood uh of the effect being more generalizable increases with you know these kind of efforts to move us away from a like a dichotomous thinking but more like a sort of uh the distribution shifts towards a high a higher prior right for Mm-hmm. those uh, effects to be oh fancy Bayesian yeah I've been thinking about Bayesian stats a little recently um, <laughs> seeping into my language I've been thinking language. about universality and generalization a lot 
because I'm I'm writing reviews now, um, re- responding to reviewers on on a paper where we explicitly argue against universality and the problems with that. Oh, very cool. Especially in like cross cultural music science, which could apply also to any kind of cross cultural psychology, right? So the the one of the questions there is. <laughs> Are these questions that we're asking ourselves in our universities, our institutions, in predominantly Western white worlds, do those questions apply to all cultures? And like, what what's the value if we're taking questions that we think are interesting, going to another culture, whether it's like a big city in China or a remote tribe in the Amazon, which is an example of music science, and like getting that information completely cut off from the context of that culture, and then bringing it back to us. Like, what? How is that helpful? What? Why are we asking that question if it's not if it's not relevant to that culture? Then what we're doing is just extractive, hmm. and that that's very imperial and colonial. And it's harmful. But I think it's important to ask ourselves why we're asking these questions, why we feel like we need to know. And if the questions that we're asking are relevant in different contexts, maybe, you know, there are different questions that different cultures want to ask because some might not have the same concepts as us. I mean, I know this concept of individuality, individual rights doesn't exist everywhere. That's a very like Enlightenment Western capitalist idea. And so the idea of individual informed consent just doesn't make sense. Right. So it doesn't make sense for us to go to this other culture, do the process that we do, and then come back. So what we advocate for is community-based work. The community will ask the questions that they're interested in. And maybe they need the researcher because they don't have like the skills to manage the data or analyze the data or you know interpret in certain ways. Although they have a lot of knowledge, I shouldn't say interpret because they can definitely interpret data. Because the I don't know we're we're experts on our own experience. We we everyone has the the information they need to understand their experience. And if if uh, a concept isn't even relevant to a culture, then what are we doing? and study our stuff on them like that's that's super othering mm. mm-hmm. that was another tangent sorry <laughs> that's something that, like i'm really interested in trying to fight against because it, it is harmful indigenous populations all over the world have been researched to death literally right it, it's so harmful yeah so we have to be really really careful yeah. when we talk about doing this kind of work yeah it's important it's such an important thought to have and like yeah, I think science needs sort of more platforms to generate consensus and understanding to ensure that these questions aren't harmful <laughs> or like the research isn't harmful and being more uh, important, like being anti-colonial, for example, or uh, yeah, just like anti-racist. Like, like those are important qualities that I think an ideal science uh, would have. And I think many of many scientists would share that would also agree so yeah that starts on the ground yeah. like being make, ensuring that our own work is adhering to those ideals absolutely uh, and to maybe 
bring it up a little bit, there are many examples of like how to do this well. It tends to be more in the humanities because they are, I guess, generally, I don't know, right. more concerned or have more experience in doing research that is more culture, culture-based. And so these are, there are critiques that exist, but also great examples of how to do this work well. So it's not like it's all doom and gloom. <laughs> There's a lot of, yeah. of hope and a lot of ways that it can be done well. But I think it, it's important to pause and think about it before we just go ahead and do it. Because we're like, well, we, we have to know. Okay, well, ask yourself why. Right. Yeah. And think about doing it very carefully before we that's, just jump in. That's just, I think, an excellent uh, mantra to have in life in general. <laughs> Stop. Mm-hmm. Ref- slow down. Think reflect, before you act. Think. <laughs> be great. Um, yeah. Back in childhood. Think before uh, you act. <laughs> I mean, is that sort of the idea of slow science? We're going to do an episode on that, hey? I hope so. Yeah, yeah so many. I think those things kind of tie together because we don't really have the space to stop and think because of this publisher parish pressure. There's just so much pressure to do things quickly and just get it out the door and push it out, push it out. And like, well, hold on now, can we, can we like stop and think yeah, about yeah. what we're doing? Yes, absolutely. and take our time. Yeah, can we, you know, come together and get consensus first, and not just be in disparate places rushing towards creating a paper which half of the field won't read because they're too busy trying to do their own experiments and not actually, so we're not yeah. actually producing knowledge and we're not actually furthering the, the world like we hope to do with our science. Yeah, because uh, the assumption is that more is better, right? But like, I don't know. I want to question that assumption real hard. Quality. It's... Quality, rigor. Mm. We need these things mm. in science. Yeah. Relevance, I think, to, was really important to me as well. Yeah, relevance. Is it, is it important and does it actually materially improve like, the lives of the people who are involved? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah all important and, questions. Yeah, and it, I mean, that's empowering. It's an empowering note to end on, I think, because, yeah. like, yeah, we can achieve these things for our ideal science. Um, and it may be as simple as slowing things down and reflecting and just sort of taking a step back and like, hang on, hold up. Let's, let's have a look. Let's, before we take our next step, let's just think for a bit. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel, yeah. I feel no, better. No, that's a great that, note to end on. I feel better that we're saying we should slow down. So I don't feel like I have to rush off. <laughs> later in yeah. time get stuff work done I can be like okay yeah I will I will take the long way long way into work or into the lab and you know yeah. have a look at the trees for a bit I have to myself all the time right even come back from I just came back from a conference at the time of recording and I was like oh, I have all these things to do and I was like well hold on are these all actual deadlines or are there deadlines I'm imposing on myself some of them are actual deadlines but the majority of them aren't Right? This doesn't have to be done by next week. This can be done like in the next month. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah. There you go, Take listeners. Take your time. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> listeners. This is us saying we need to slow down. Here's a good reason to slow down. Take that break. Don't yeah. rush into the next thing. Um, take care of yourselves first and foremost. Um, Absolutely. 
All right. Thanks for joining us for this episode. If you have anything you want to share, reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at at Sarah underscore Silvey. You can find me at underscore Wilnyam on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, and if you'd like to start your own journal club where you can have these kind of discussions at your local institution, uh, you should check out the Reproducibility Journal Clubs at reproducibility.org. See you next time. Bye.